but actually I trust it's part of the same theme. It's about understanding God's heart this morning. And in some ways we've been understanding more of God's heart already, just while we were singing our songs, while we were praying. That's great. We're returning to Genesis today. Hooray! Somebody said hooray. Two people. It's good. Uh, We've been gradually working our way through Genesis, the first book of the Bible since uh, last March. In fact, we started. And we've been stopping and starting for give ourselves a break, otherwise we won't be, we'll be wading through it uh, interminably otherwise, perhaps we might feel that way. Um, so we'll be doing it in chunks, and uh, we broke up just before Christmas, uh, a little something called Christmas came along, and then we've done our One Another Ring series as well, but now we're back in Genesis. And I don't know if you can remember, but last September, October, November, we were looking at uh, uh, the stories of Abraham and his wife Sarah, and uh, promises over them. God gave Abraham big, big promises that, as we see, as we re- keep reading his story, we find out he, pro- he fulfilled in a bigger way than Abraham could ever really comprehend. And uh, if you remember, Sam Morris from Faversham shared a very significant word for us about who are you listening to when Abraham tried to take God's promise into his own hands and him and Sarah tried to do it their own way and having a baby by another woman and, and this kind of stuff. And uh, time and again, God stepped in with grace and said, no, 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 I've got great plans, just trust me, I know what I'm doing here. And uh, we have returned to that man, Abraham. So Genesis chapter 18. Today we start, we're going to do two weeks on uh, the famous, or perhaps we should say infamous, story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, this week I'm going to be talking about the run-up to it, a conversation that precedes the actual incident of God's judgment on two evil cities. And uh, next week David will be dealing with the incident itself. But uh, this uh, section we're going to read is going to be from verse 16 of Genesis 18. And this is a conversation between Abraham and, and the Lord. And um, there are a lot of questions in what we're about to read. Full of questions, which on the surface, it just looks like a conversation. Uh, and, but actually, what underlies it are bigger questions. I've called today question time. There's three other questions I'd like to ask that go a lot deeper below the surface of this conversation to really understand what's going on here. Uh, We can just look at it as a bit of a haggling between Abraham and God, but actually there's more at heart and more at stake here that we can learn a lot from. So I'm going to ask three different questions. But uh, let me just pray, and then we'll read. Lord, thank you that you've spoken to us already today. Thank you that you speak to your people, even today, 2015, somewhat. 4,000 years after this story we're about to read. Um, Lord, we're just so grateful that you are still involved in humanity. You are still involved in your people, your family, that you're continuing to gather. And Lord, we just say, Lord, humbly, may you continue to speak to us, that we don't put all that to one side and just assume we're just going to hear some intellectual information that will tickle our ears. Lord, let this be truly what it is, is your word. Lord, and help me to do that as your little pitiful, humble servant. Lord, under the weight of your word, let you do your work. Holy Spirit, may you do the convicting, may you do the revealing, may you do the opening of hearts and eyes and ears, that we might know more of our great God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, this story, what's going on here? Do you remember when I spoke about Abraham and Melchizedek, that strange character who's kind of a, a foreshadow of the Messiah to come. Um, during that story, there was the Battle of the Nine Armies. I don't know if you remember this. 
And um, there were four kings and five kings, including Abraham. He actually had an army of 300 and odd trained men. What a dude. He wasn't just a bit of kind of a farmer, a shepherd. And during that story, these two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah got ransacked. And Abraham's nephew Lot was already living there. He'd been given the opportunity. We didn't dwell on it too much, but he was given the opportunity to choose the land. Abraham said, look, look, the, the horizon. Which bit do you want? And he saw the bit that was really fertile and Lot said, I love that just to the east of the Dead Sea. And so that's the bit he, he opted for, and that's where Sodom and Gomorrah lie. It's what we would call today Jordan, uh, that in the nation of Jordan. It's where, it, where, where these two cities were. They've, they've un, now uncovered uh, some of the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah that were covered in dust in such a way that there must be a great devastation on that place that ended it very suddenly. Hello. So we'll find out about that next week, of course. But it's just on the eastern bank of the uh, Dead Sea, and that's the bit that Lot, Abraham's nephew, chose. He said, that's green and fertile. Thanks for giving me the choice. I'll have that. And Abraham had the rest. Of course, where he was living there, Sodom and Gomorrah got ransacked and Lot and his family were taken. Which is why in that story I told back in November, um, Abraham and his trained men and these other kings, they routed these other other kings and it, Lot got rescued as a result. So Lot is still back in Sodom. And uh, this is quite a sobering story, really. This is a very uh, direct story of man's depravity. And we find out later what these people got up to. It's quite, it's quite hideous. At the core of it, hideous sexual sin was going on. But we also see God's grace in this. We see judgment, but again, as it keeps coming up, God's grace. So David will be looking at the event. Today I'm looking at the questions. So this is a moment when the Lord himself... Uh, I won't go into the details of theophanies and that. You can listen to my Melchizedek story again, uh, my sermon again back in November, to explain what uh, it's just when Jesus effectively is making a cameo appearance before his big great reveal in four, approximately BC in human form. But whenever God reveals himself in a visual sense for man to be able to behold God, actually picking through the scriptures, we recognize actually each time it's Jesus who's doing that. So actually this is Jesus, but in two angels who have appeared to Abraham and Sarah to continue to encourage them. And uh, as part of this conversation, something then happens. Let's just read from verse 16. Then the men, this is the angel, set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord, who was the third figure there, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, 
I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. It's haggling, isn't he? He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Okay, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, he keeps pushing. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he answered, I'll let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Questions, questions, questions. He keeps pushing, doesn't he? He keeps pushing God, trying to seek God's heart here. There's three other questions on the back of this I'd like to ask. We're not just going to look at the numbers or we're missing the point. I'll mention them briefly, but there's three other questions. First of all, should we question God? Fair question. We've got to ask it, haven't we? Should we question God? Secondly, what is God's attitude to evil and suffering? And thirdly, amongst many others we could ask, what influence do we have as his people in the places where we live? So first of all, and I'll remind you of them as we come up to them, first of all, should we question God? I mean, what's Abraham doing here? It's like Jenny and I, when we go abroad, we're never in North Africa, we love to go to the souks, don't we? And I'm rubbish at haggling because I'm too nice. But not that Jenny's not nice, but she's really good at haggling. She... They go, she goes, how much is this vase? And they go, 50. And she goes, I'll give you three. <laughs> she, goes, she goes right down below. But eventually, but eventually we get a good price. Jenny's really good at haggling. And it's almost, aren't you? See, she's gone red. It's true. But it's almost like Abraham's haggling with God. Should he be doing that? What's he doing here? Is this allowable? See, the whole thing about children should be seen and not heard is famous, isn't it? Could you ever question your dad when you were growing up? Sometimes. Who, who was allowed to freely question their dad at any point? Some, few. Who couldn't? More. It's quite common, isn't it? It's quite common. See, me learning as, as a father with Amy, see, I'm, I'm learning it's not just about saying to her because I said so. Sometimes, to protect her, I don't give her all the reasons. She's not old enough to comprehend quite what's going on in the world out there. So sometimes it is, please just trust me. But generally speaking, as she's older, getting older, I'm, I'm learning to help her reason with me. Why, why are we doing this? Why can't we do such and such? Why can't I have an Instagram account? Why can't I do this? All this kind of thing. And it's just all about protection, but I can explain to her reasons. And I like that. I want her to probe my heart and to find out why I've made the decisions as her dad that I've made. And that's kind of what, what Abraham's doing here. See, who's in control of the conversation here? On the surface, it looks like Abraham is. He's the one who's dominating, he's setting the, the ground rules for this conversation. That's what it looks like, isn't it? And it's just God is responding each time. But actually, for starters, God has been exceptionally patient with him. He could tire of him very quickly. And when he goes, oh, I'm but dust and ashes, God goes, yeah, with a flick of my finger, I could turn you into that. <laughs> Stop pushing me. But he's very patient with Abraham, isn't he? But he keeps pushing him. What if there's 50? What if there's 45? What if there's 40? 30? 20? 10? Now, I think God says 
if there were ten righteous in, that, in those cities, he would spare them. Cities in those days were not cities like, they were not millions. But we're still talking about two to four thousand people were present in Sodom and Gomorrah at the time. And God's saying, for 3,990 people committing evil, if there's ten righteous, I'll spare them. That's a biggie. But God agrees. What's actually going on here? Whenever I watch the programs like 24 and these big kind of political thrillers, they have to make some very difficult ethical questions, uh, uh, decisions and choices about uh, sacrificing the few to save the many. We need to let that bomb go off over there and a hundred will die, innocent people, but it means we get to save millions in the end. They've got to make these difficult questions. God is going, if there's ten, I won't do it. See, God's heart is very, very different in this. He, keeps, he promises to keep the believers safe. In fact, he does. There is judgment, and he does. There's a lot less than ten there. Turns out, actually, there's probably about three. But God does it time and time again in the great flood, catastrophic, global flood. He saves his people, Noah and his family. In Jericho, the whole city gets trashed. Rahab and her family who become believers, her household, are safe. God will keep his people safe. This not including persecution. Christians do die. Don't forget that. I'm not saying that. But in terms of judgment, God will look after his people. His grace abounds. See here, God is saying he would actually allow the majority for a time to continue in their rebellion for the sake of a precious few if there were ten. Turns out there weren't. See, what's he doing here? See, he's saying, what's he saying? In verse, uh, verse 21, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. I'm going to go and have a look. Now, we were just talking earlier about God is always present. So why does he need to do this? He doesn't need to walk down to the cities, look through the windows and listen to the conversations in the pubs to get an assessment of what's going on, does he? Why is he saying that? Well, I'd suggest it's this. It's because he wanted Abraham to see that he knows and he has examined hearts. What he's doing, he wants to show Abraham that when he acts in judgment, he acts in all integrity, in all discernment, and in careful weighing. He is not a rash God. And so actually, what he's doing, he's inviting Abraham to see his true colours. And actually, unbeknownst to Abraham, he's teasing Abraham actually. He's getting Abraham to show his true colours as well as one of God's people. They're probing each other's heart. And actually, what we have here is the very first recorded prayer of intercession. This is an intercessory prayer. This is Abraham having the privilege to stand in the place, in the gap, between great holy God and evil man, and going, what if? What if? And he's probing God's heart and he's inquiring of him. Should we ask questions of God? Yes, when we're inquiring of him. This isn't back chat. That's different. Amy back chats me sometimes. She gets in trouble. But she's inquiring of me. She wants to know my heart and my reasons. That's fine. That's good. We get to know each other more. That's exactly what God actually, unbeknownst to Abraham, is cunningly inviting Abraham into. Keep asking, keep asking. 
Should we question God when it's inquiring to probe his heart? Yes. So the next question, what is God's attitude to evil? What is God's attitude to suffering? Well, we can get a sense of it, can't we, already? Because here, we need to recognise these aren't just evildoers. This isn't two cities full of evildoers. If there are evildoers, there must be evil receivers. There are people on the end of it. There are victims too, of course, aren't there? Predominantly, they're going to be each other. If most of them are evil, and they're all committing evil, they're probably doing it to each other. But also, remember that cities have an influence. Cities have an impact on regions, on areas, on visitors. There are victims at stake here. And God cares about depravity as a holy God. He cares about the sin in our hearts, and all of us have sinned. He cares about that, but he also cares about the victims. Sin damages the people who are committing it, and it damages the people who are on the receiving end of it. We damage ourselves, and we damage others. ISIS are damaging others. ISIS are damaging the world through the reports that are coming through the media and they're generating fear. They love that. And they're damaging others in, com- in, in terms of the actual atrocities they're physically committing to people and their bodies. But they're damaging themselves as well. There's consequences both ways, aren't there? Abuse, be that sexual, physical, emotional. The abusers damage the people they're abusing and they're damaging themselves spiritually as well. See, God cares about evil and suffering. And suffering, yes, we can include suffering in terms of things like tsunamis. And there was a cyclone, wasn't it, the other day. We can include that. And go, well, whose fault's that? And quite often people point to God then. But we have to recognise there's more at stake going on. For starters, when it comes to famines and things like that, quite often governments don't step in and help their people out when there's a famine because they spent all their money on arms sometimes. There's an imbalance and an evil, even though it's the weather that's caused the famine, the issue is actually in poverty and lack of food has come because of other reasons. But also, ultimately, nature is our fault. Because when the first sin was committed, we as humanity, we put a cosmic spanner in the works and the whole of nature has been out of sync ever since. It actually is our fault. It's hard to get our heads around, but that's what happened. The curse isn't just on humanity, it's on the cosmos. All of us are out of sync. And so to say, well, why doesn't God step in? It's the common refrain from our friends who, who don't know God like we do. And I understand it. I'd be asking the same question. Looking around at the world, why doesn't God do something about it? Many think he doesn't exist, therefore that's why. Many think he does exist, but he doesn't care. The Bible says very, very differently. So when Stephen Fry in recent weeks said to a God he doesn't believe in, why didn't you create a world without evil in? The answer is he did. (laughs) He did. We're the ones who screwed it up. So then to ask, why doesn't God step in? We should reframe it. Actually, why doesn't he just wipe us all out? We always look at it from our point of view and our rights and what we think we deserve and we've got it woefully wrong when we do that. It's not why doesn't God step in to help us out. It's why should he in the first place? Why doesn't he just wipe us out for what we've done to this cosmos, to this beautiful universe he's created? The wonder is, in fact, that he's held back his ultimate judgment for so long. But actually one day he has promised he will say enough. 
Read the book of Revelation. It's coming. And that's interesting because Sodom and Gomorrah is the New Testament's second favourite illustration for the second coming and the great judgment after the flood. It's mentioned four times, Sodom and Gomorrah, this story, four times in the New Testament as an illustration of something bigger and worse to come for those, of, those who don't know him. So to say, why not do something? Why does God not step in? The answer is, he has. He has. See, Jesus, eternal God, he's doing these cameo appearances, we're seeing him here. But his great reveal, 3-4 BC, whenever it was, came in human form. He came into our broken world. A world that is completely spiritually, cosmically out of sync. And he came here to point the way to the Father, to teach, to make disciples, to heal. But also to be victimised, to suffer, to be tortured, to be rejected, to be spat on. This is God. And to be killed that we might be saved. Why doesn't God step in and deal with the suffering in the world? God came into our suffering, entered our suffering, experienced our suffering, that we might live a new life that can make a difference and be secure forever and preach that good news that others might join in as well. He's already started. It's already begun. He has stepped in, he does step in, and he will step in. So how does he step in that present time? He has stepped in already at the cross. He will step in at the final judgment. In between, he still does step in. We've been hearing about grace. We've been hearing about God pouring his favour on his people in little ways and big ways. We heard big testimonies on Friday at Enough. Helen shared her story brilliantly. Still so proud of you. It's fantastic. Big stories of what God does in our lives. Hear from James about when his wife Kerry died last year. And he's saying, my God was there for me. He still steps in. But actually he steps in other ways as well through us, the church. This is my third question. What influence do we have as the church? Abraham's going, if even there are ten people in amongst three or four thousand, will you bring judgment? And God goes, if there's ten, no, I won't. That is the church having influence in an evil place. Do you see that? Interesting. Do we have influence? Yes, we do. How and why? Why did God choose to involve Abraham in the conversation in the first place? It's because he chose to involve him in world-changing purposes. Verse 17, he gives the reason right at the beginning. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So I'm going to involve him in the conversation. And he does the same with us. In the same way, he's revealed to us glimpses of what he's up to, of what he's done, of what he will do. Us as his people. Give me a glimpse of his heart, of his purpose, revelation and elsewhere. We get to see what he's heading towards and we get to see what he's doing now as a result. And what a privilege that is. John 15, 15. John chapter 15, verse 15. This is Jesus saying... No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. 
But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus talks about the end of the, end of the days as well. I've made known to you. And then another one, Psalm 25, 14. Back in the Psalms. Psalm 25, 14. says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. And that's the NIV translates that the Lord confides in those who fear him. God loves to invite us in, just like he did with Abraham. Abraham represented his people. We actually also represent his people here on this broken world. And he loves to invite us into what he's up to, not just to know about it, but to be involved. He loves to whisper his secrets to us. Why? He's chosen us to be his family and to get stuck in. We are chosen as participants, as change bringers, as torch bearers, as heralds. Getting swept up in his work in our community and beyond. And I love that. I love that. See, one thing we need to remember, the church... We are not here for our own benefit. We are not here for the benefit of our members. We are here for the benefit of our non-members. Go and make disciples. That means blessing each other, love one another. Absolutely. But it doesn't stop there. We're not a club. We're here to make Jesus known, to share his goodness and his grace and point to him that others might be saved as well. We're here for their benefit. And we get to make a difference in the place where we live. Ten people, if there were ten believers amongst three or four thousand, that place would not have been come to rack and ruin like it did. Ten. Imagine as we grow as a church, what a difference. Not just us, I'm talking about Christ Church and Baptist Church and so on. As we grow, it looks like there's another church coming to town this year as well. I'm getting excited about that. Another one to partner with. It's good. We need all the help we can get. As the church grows in Herne Bay, imagine what a difference it will make on the culture in Herne Bay, on the community, on the society, on the families in Herne Bay. Imagine what a difference it will make for his glory. The church makes a difference. What are the specific things we can do as his church? Firstly, obviously, pray. We had a great opportunity on Friday night to start doing that, partnering with others at the same time. We continue to do it here just as part of our culture. Just get used to prayer. I've just read a brilliant book that takes less than an hour to read, doesn't it? How to Enjoy Your Prayer Life. If you want the details of it, I'll, I'll give you the details. It's brilliant. In fact, just this past week, it's revolutionized my prayer life yet again. It's that simple. It's learning what prayer is. Prayer is not something we do. Prayer is acting out who we are. And this is what Abraham's doing. He's just being God's child and inquiring after his father's heart and learning in the process. That's what we get to do. It's about intercession. Interceding on behalf of others. Giving voice to the voiceless. God, what if? God, will you bring a difference? We are called in his word to pray for leaders. 1 Timothy 2, isn't it? Pray for our leaders. Pray for our towns, our nations. Pray for the world. We've got some prayer walks we're planning for just this immediate area in Greenhill a couple of times this year. We're going to get some dates sorted. Just go for prayer walks. And as we walk, 
There is the spiritual dimension of God does something while we're walking and praying, but it's also we're aware of the people we're praying for. It helps us pray as well. And actually we're developing a bit more of a decisive vision for what we can do in the local community here, and we'll be sharing that more with you over the next coming weeks of how we can focus our prayers and our efforts as a church for the near future, the short to mid-term, before God reveals the next step. But the next step is actually being revealed and we're just trying to define it before we share it with you. But it's quite exciting. God's got stuff on the agenda. And I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do. But he's going to give us specific things to deal with and to work through. Pray through it together. We need to pray. We need to preach. In season and out of season. 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us, in season and out of season, be prepared to share the good news of Christ. Not just when it's easy, but sometimes when it's hard. Finding different ways to do it. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared. We can sometimes get a little bit... Someone goes, so tell me how you became a Christian. Or tell me why you love God. Tell me why you think God exists. And suddenly you're caught in the hop. You're like, oh, uh, uh, what's the right words? And you stutter and stumble. It's okay. Just a little arrow prayer. He'll help you. Just be prepared just to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Evangelism isn't just telling people about Jesus. Because that can become abstract. It's just an idea. Think of it this way. This helps evangelism. When you hear the word evangelism, you can be a bit like, oh, I'll leave that to the evangelists. We're all meant to be little evangelists. But evangelism is more than just telling people about Jesus, the intellectual stuff. It's actually just inviting them to meet your friend. You wouldn't believe what Jesus did for me last week. You wouldn't realise what, oh, I can't believe. Well, just when I was praying and he just put someone on my heart and I was just praying for him and then it turns out they were having a bad old time and I didn't know anything about it. Little things like that. Do you want to meet this person? It's amazing. His name's Jesus. Or just how can you go through what you're going through and not crumble. Well, because of Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. He's my friend and my saviour. It's different to just intellectual information. Let me tell you about Jesus in the Bible. It's different. It's the same, but different. It just helps. Call to pray, call to preach, and we call to seek others' welfare. One of my favourite verses, as you probably know by now, Jeremiah 29, 7. God's talking to his people who are in exile in Babylon. They're, they're mourning the loss of their nation. They're not there anymore. They're a thousand miles away. And yet God is saying to them, get stuck in, get mortgages, get, get houses, you know, marry, grow gardens, work. They had jobs to do while they were there. But he said, while you're there, seek their welfare. They're not my people, but seek their welfare and pray for them. Because in their welfare, you'll find your welfare. See, we are called to serve the poor. Numerous times throughout the Bible, reminded to serve the poor. How? Numerous ways. But to feed them, to clothe them, to give them homes, to give them a voice sometimes. It's not just financial poverty, spiritual poverty, emotional poverty. And the church, when we pray, preach, seek others' welfare, we see a difference. People will get saved and added. But even just in the culture, there is a spiritual shift. Let me explain. One of our friends, Jen, just talking to her recently, she lived in a couple of places uh, elsewhere. And I won't, I won't say where the first place is. But um, she says she used to live somewhere for a while. And she said, she's quite sensitive kind of prophetically. And she said, there's, there was this spiritual cloud over that place. It was just 
depressing, de- depressive. It was, there was an oppression over this place. And the church wasn't particularly active in this place. There was churches there, but it just, you just felt under this kind of permanent gloom. You, could just, you couldn't quite put your finger on it, but it was just one of those places you just did not enjoy living in. She said she then moved to Bedford. Bedford, even we, just New Frontiers, have four churches there, let alone other streams and denominations. And the churches there are making a big difference in terms of... Simon Holly, we preached about um, uh, walking in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and living a supernatural life. It's based on Simon Holly's uh, book. He leads one of our churches in Bedford. And they, they're going out and they're making a difference. They're seeing huge amounts of healings and life transformations. They are naturally living the supernatural life in increasing manner. It's something we can keep learning from them. But not just them, there's other churches there. She said if she moved to Bedford, before she even heard what was going on in the churches, she knew there was a difference. There's something about Bedford that was like, there's a way off. She could sense something in the spiritual dimension. The church makes a difference. The church makes a difference. But it's not out of duty, it's about out of relationship, isn't it? And about probing Father's heart, and as we get to know his heart, our hearts change. It's about moving on, it's about growing. And there's one thing about Abraham I love that we see here that I'll finish on. About probing this heart. You see, when Abraham was called to leave his homeland, he didn't blink, didn't bat an eyelid. He doesn't say a word. God says go, so he gets up and goes. And even later on, as we'll find out, when he's called to sacrifice his own son, events turn out differently. But as he's he's asked to do that, he doesn't blink. He just gets up and goes off to do it. But all of a sudden, when others' welfare is at stake, he can't keep his mouth shut. Interesting. It's his real sense of justice. As he probes Father's heart, he just keeps building the same heart. He keeps growing, keeps changing. Our Amy, she's fascinating. If she's being picked on at school, she won't say a word. She bottles it all up. If, if people are being unfair, being nasty, nasty words, kicking her glasses across the floor, they do these kind of things to her, some of these kids. She won't say anything. She'll bottle it all up and get ill with it and eventually a fortnight later we find out about it and then we go and deal with it. She won't say anything. If she sees others being picked on and being treated unfairly, she gets really, really upset about it and wants to do something. There's a sense of injustice about giving a voice to the voiceless. She wants to help out, and that's what Abraham's doing here. Leave your homeland. Go thousands of miles away to somewhere else you haven't seen yet. Okay. Sacrifice your son. Yeah, right. I'm going I'm to judge those two cities over there. Uh, excuse me, uh, what if there's 20 in the church over there? Straight away, he can't keep his mouth shut. I love it. Billy Graham once said, Tears shed for self are tears of weakness. But tears shed for others are a sign of strength. He's saying you can enjoy your pity parties if you like, but the more you seek after God's heart, you'll develop a heart for something else entirely. Not for you, but for others. Would you like to stand?